Welcome to the Gracious Leader Podcast with your host, Doris Young Boyer. Thank you for joining us today. The mission of this podcast is for you to hear from experts the power of graciousness to help you create the life you want and lead others to do the same. You will learn strategies and techniques to transform awkward situations, insights to create and sustain relationships, strategies to develop collaborative cultures, and proven methods to lead with poise and power. Here's Doris. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for being with me today. I'm your host, Doris Young-Boyer, and you are listening to the Gracious Leader Podcast. And we have a wonderful program prepared for you today, a great guest who has a great sense of humor, a great speaking voice, and he's doing great work. I mean, what else could we want to start with today? My guest is Hugh Ballou. Welcome, Hugh. I'm glad to see you. Doris, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, let me tell the audience a little bit about you, Hugh. Hugh is currently a transformational leadership strategist and corporate culture architect. And we're going to give him a time to tell us about that. He's president and founder of Cinevision Leadership Foundation. And I, I really just love the tagline for the, the foundation. So I want to share it with, the, with you, audience. It's co-creating a more loving and just world in which nonprofit organizations are even more successful. So two things caught my eye, one, even more successful, and two, a loving and just world. What great words to hear with all that's going on in our, in our world today. In his prior career, Hugh performed, and I mean literally performed, as a music conductor. He has written four books. He's an accomplished podcaster as a host, as well as a guest. So, Hugh, I welcome you again, and let me just tell the audience a little bit about how you and I met. We're both members of an organization called C-Suite Network, where we are advisors to high-level leaders who are coming up with cultures and programs and whatever it takes for their organizations to be peak performers. And Hugh and I were in a networking session that the organization hosts on Friday evenings, and we just connected with each other. Um, and we, as we have with each succeeding encounter that we have, and I just loved his energy, um, his graciousness, and I'm glad that we're here today. So Hugh, one of my, my key questions to you as a, a conductor, I want to talk about that a little bit, but what was it like doing your job with the people that you were serving in back of you? I'm assuming that the, the audience was the group that you're serving. So you, you were not, your back was to the audience. What was that like? My first experience in keynote speaking in 2007, somebody put me on stage in front of a thousand people and I had to face people. So it was the first time in my career that I didn't have my back to the audience. Now there's two audiences. Um, the audience that I'm facing is the, is the audience that I lead. Mm -hmm. The audience behind me is the audience that appreciates what we do. In nonprofit leadership, corporate leadership, church leadership, wherever you lead, there's your internal team, your primary team. That's the team that responds to every nuance, like an orchestra responds to the direction of the conductor. And the benefit goes to those whom you serve. In charity work and church work, we serve other people. 
I love the slogan at Rotary. There's a four-way test. Is it beneficial to all concerned? So it's it's about who do we serve and what value do we bring to people? So there's the audience that we lead. That's our internal team. And they impact the audience that experiences us, which is the audience in the background. Now, I'd like to take this opportunity to uh, speak to the misperception. There's lots of misperceptions about leaderships, and there's lots of, mis- of myths that we tell ourselves about what if and what I can't do. There's a lot of myths, and we'll cover those. But the perception of people who are not a conductor is that the conductor is a dictator. Well, I'm on this podium. I got all of these contract musicians who are consummate professionals. They might even be a part of the union. So I've got specific time that I've paid for and I have to accomplish things within that time frame. So I've got these professionals that are the top of their class and I'm going to step on the podium and I'm going to tell them what to do just because I have a little white stick mm-hmm. and I've got this position here. It doesn't mean I can make anybody do anything. However, the paradigm people don't understand is that the conductor influences people. They're going to play the notes and it might be really boring. But if we want to excite the passion and bring out the music of the group as a whole, then we need to engage every single leader. So leaders on te- leaders empower leaders on teams to raise the bar on their own performance and orchestrate excellence with this ensemble. Wow, that's very interesting. Well, how do the how does your team, the the musicians, how do they view the role of the conductor? Well, it varies a lot. And then throughout history, we have had uh, very famous conductors, George Zell, Arturo Toscanini, among some who are who are known to be very, very strict dictators and be very hard on their ensembles. And, you know, there's a famous conductor that came to Atlanta and took over the directorship of that symphony who had worked with George Zell and understood that dynamic. And he tried to do it in Atlanta. And when they got in the first concert, the orchestra got even. They played very poorly, made the conductor look bad. Wow, wow, wow. So your team can actually work to overcome your deficits as a leader if there's a relationship and if there's respect. And to your topic, there's there's grace. We don't attack people for making a mistake. What we do is help them realize that that wasn't correct and help them determine how they're going to fix that. And in music, it's maybe playing the wrong notes or playing out of tune. And we learn to say, okay, this isn't correct. How do we fix it? Well, with the trumpets, they're too loud. And we say, because we're in front and we've got the only perspective to hear it all, we say, trumpets, that's too loud. Take it down one dynamic level. Now, I didn't denigrate them. I didn't criticize them. I didn't attack them personally. I said, it's too loud. Well, They're playing a loud instrument and they're in the back of the orchestra. They have no idea the balance. So it's my duty and delight to say, okay, here's what I need to get the balance. And then they write it down and they fix it. So we diagnose the situation and we help people correct it. And then we encourage the higher performance standard. Now, your your team, your musicians, they see the audience and they see the audience reaction. Do how do you do you read your team? Do you do they give you any signals of how what they're what you are all doing together is being received? We don't really get to read the audience until applause because it's usually dark. Mm-hmm. And we're so focused on the nuances of what we're doing. It's like a drama team on stage or a football team on the field. They're so focused, the audience disappears. So we're focusing on the excellence of, of our implementation of 
those notes. There's a genius that wrote those notes down. And our goal is to bring out that music. It's just a flat piece of paper with dots on it. Our job is to manifest that into the glorious sounds that were in the composer's mind. So we're focused on that. And there's a synergy amongst the players. We actually listen to each other and we we respond to what we're hearing. And, and there's lots of very fine nuances that people adjust to. So that's why every ensemble, every musical group rehearses for every performance, even the best in the world rehearse for every performance because we're working on our on our skill set. Now, we have in America what's called NASCAR racing. And the the car, they're stock cars basically. They're supposed to have been off the off the off the floor, cars, Ford, Chevys, whatever. But <laughs> the only resemblance is the the profile. But they they pull in for a pit stop. Seven people jump over the, the, the wall. They've changed four tires, clean the windshield, fill the tank, and they're back over the wall in 13 seconds. Now, 13.1 seconds, that driver's gonna lose a position or more on the track. That team rehearses for every race. They were they're very fine-tuned. So there's many examples of the team and how the team functions together. And we don't give up our individual skills. We magnify our skills because we're working together with our team. And it's no different whether you're leading a nonprofit board, you're leading an executive staff in a corporation, or wherever you lead, we're influencing people to be their best selves and to perform at their highest standard. You've said so much. So how do we synthesize it? What do you say is the key role of the conductor? Influencing people. Now, when I I served megachurches and I would hire major orchestras, Um, not the orchestra, but the players from the orchestra. So I'd have the best of the best. And um, I wouldn't hire the very best oboe player and then tell them how to play the oboe. Mm-hmm. It's interesting in corporate America, people hire a, a, a marketing person. They say, here's what I want you to do. Well, that would be called micromanaging. Now, we hired a competent person. Um, I love the quote from uh, Steve Jobs. He said, we don't hire people and tell them what to do. We hire good people. We train them and they tell us what to do. Mm-hmm. Now, in a drama team or, or a, a orchestra or a choir, they don't tell us what to do, but they do tell us indirectly how effective we are as a leader. Because if we're not getting the results we want, it doesn't do any good to yell at the choir or the orchestra or the, the committee or the team or the board. It's looking at ourselves. What did I communicate that led them to do what they did? Maybe they didn't understand, or maybe I was not effective, or maybe I set up the situation by what I said, you know, the wrong word or the wrong inflection we can have the correct word and the wrong inflection, and it can mean the opposite of what we mean. So it's it's our duty and delight to be very clear and then to check for understanding. Now, in music, we're going to be really clear right away, the effects of our leadership, because you hear it right away. Mm-hmm. So in rehearsal, we give directions and we we run it. And if it doesn't happen, it's really clear that they didn't get it. So then we try to explain it a different way, and then we have another go at it. So does that answer your question? Yes, it does. And another question I wonder, how did you prepare yourself to be a conductor? What made you decide this is the career for you? How did you come to that as a, as a career for you? My parents listened to classical music. And I grew up in that era. I was a teenager when Elvis Presley was popular. Well, I didn't listen to the rock music on the radio. I listened to the classical station. 
And so I was programmed to all these great masterworks. I went to symphony concerts. I really studied piano. I really enjoyed the masterworks. So I, I really liked it. So I would go to church and I'd see the choir. One day, there was a note on the bulletin board at music school. I went to George State College at the time. I went to music school and I saw the note to be a choir director. And so I took it and got the job. I was 18. Well, I'd never been in a choir and I'd certainly never conducted a choir. I had studied music and I was studying music and I knew music theory. So I saw somebody do it and I said, you know, I could do that. So as my wife has taught me, at some points in our life, we are nothing but potential. And there was somebody that gave me a chance to grow that potential. So that career lasted 40 years. And I, I went from the very smallest church in the country in, the, in my denomination to the very largest. So from 100 members to 12,000 uh, 12, members, I just kind of went to the next place. And I had some wonderful opportunities. And I applied myself to something that I it was not an in, inherited skill. And we do make a mistake by thinking that's a born leader. Well, that's rubbish. That's a myth. We need to learn leadership skills. We might be a born a bully or something like that, but we're not a born leader. That's, an, that's a learned skill. You mentioned myths, and, and um, I'm going to jump ahead because you, you talk about eight myths. Um, so what are some of the myths people have about leadership and, and power? And which is the most troublesome for leaders? Well, you know, there's the the when, the when myth. You know, we we want to tell ourselves, I will be better when, or I'll learn this when. And it's like people with their lives. You know, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be more effective when mm. I get to college, when I finish college, when I do this. So it's it's the delay. Uh, so there's there you know there's actually seven that I've identified. I forgot what the eight one was, but position myth, destination, influence, inexperience, freedom, potential, all or nothing. So those are the kinds of myths. It's, it basically, all of them center around. I don't have the permission to do this. I don't have the skill to do this. So you know the destination myth. You know we I'm gonna, when I get to that job and I. I get to be called the leader, then I'll be, I'll learn it. Well, people say to me, oh, I'm going to get you to help me with my team once I get a team. Well, wait a minute. There's some things that precede that. So number one, we work on our skills harder than we work on our, our business or a nonprofit. Number one thing is to work on self. And we start wherever you are and you embrace where you are and you move forward to where you want to be. And it doesn't mean that you got to be the top leader. Um, we influence everybody in the in the organization, up, down, sideways. And actually, if you think of the organizational chart as concentric circles rather than lines and boxes with uh, autocratic leadership, there's there's a synergy of how people function together. And here's an interesting thought. The last three churches I served were in crisis when I got there. Mm-hmm. In this big church in Atlanta, when I'm moving in all my boxes on a Saturday, the preacher greets me and goes in. He comes back out and he looks at me. There were 88 people in the search for this job and I got it. He came out and he looked at me, pointed his finger and he said, we're so sure God's called you here because you know what a big mess it is and you're coming anyway. (laughs) So they had just lost 200 singers in the adult choir. And I had 30 days to produce a Messiah concert plus um, one week, somebody was doing the, the next day for Sunday. Some, but I had a week to 
prepare music for three services. So uh, the three churches, and I was not senior leadership. There were 12 pastors. I was the music director. But in these three churches, I was the catalyst for transformation. Mm-hmm. We don't need to think we're failing. We need to know that, know that we're succeeding and we're going to do the following thing. So there was no formula. There was just, what are the possibilities? Let's not consider failure an option and let's go for it. Now, I didn't have the position of making the final decision. So I influenced everybody around me. That's the 360 degree in influencing. So I didn't have experience when I started this. That's okay. I got the experience as I went. And then I didn't have the influence of position, but I had the influence of Hugh Ballou. And so I, I've, I embraced Hugh Ballou as, as somebody worthy, which means we got to quit telling ourselves we can't do it. Here's a fun fact. Um, twice in my career, I had to follow the famous speaker, Les Brown, on stage. Yes, I know Les Brown. And uh, <laughs> that's a pretty hard thing to follow. And so one time I was at Lake Tahoe and everybody was screaming and hollering. They were so excited. And I made the mistake of being in the back of the room and going, oh, my word, I got to follow this. So they had a break. And so at that, that day, I was dressed in my tuxedo. So I went and put it on talking about what a conductor knows about leadership and how you can take these, these system and put them anywhere that you lead. And so I'm looking in the mirror as I'm tying that white bow tie and I pointed at myself and I said, Hugh, I was worried about how am I going to get that crowd to do what he did? I said, Hugh, you're going to go out there and you're going to be Hugh Ballou. And it was the best I ever did in my life. And people loved it, but it was a contrast. I'm not Les Brown. I didn't try to be Les Brown. People could tell the difference right away. We do look a little different. So I was out there and one next time I was doing this session after him and it was in the same room and he was leaving. And uh, I, yeah, I know Les, he's, he's, a, he's a great guy. He's leaving. And within earshot, I said, well, how many speakers can say Les Brown warmed up the audience for them? And that just really broke the ice and, and made it a whole lot of fun. <laughs> it is a wonderful story. One of the, the myths that we tell ourselves about leadership is that we have to follow somebody else's model. Yeah. In transformational leadership is what I teach. It's about the vision, not about me. It's about building leadership as a culture, not about me. It's not about me. It's about what we do together. And that's very much true for the orchestra. Somebody's got to stand in front. Somebody's got to pull it together and help people be their best. And that's us as the leader. We, we guide the process. We don't micromanage. We guide the process. And people have got the music. And so we give them the ability to raise the bar on their own performance. We create the space and we influence people to step up. Now, they're going to respond to our capabilities. So we, we need to be clear on what we want, and we need to have the, have the skill set to be able to lead them. That's the, and union musicians are going to challenge you as a conductor if you're trying to fake it. We need to be authentic, which is where we just ended up in this previous story. We need to be authentic to who we are and be genuine, and people respond to that in, in a more gracious way. How would a conductor be inauthentic? How would a conductor try to fake it? What In what area would that fall? Well, I used to go to workshops and study with the most famous conductors in the world. And I went to one, one time and the, the conductor was probably the best motivator in any field. The guy was just brilliant. He happened to be a conductor and everybody was just like, whoa, this is great. So I came home and took some of his things and I just passed them off as mine. And so one of my tenors says, don't you ever go to any workshops again. We got to fix you now. 
So <laughs> I was coming in and it, they knew it wasn't authentic and I couldn't be anybody else, but Hugh Blue. And so my mistake was saying, oh, I'm going to do all this stuff and people are going to love me. Well, they love me anyway, despite my flaws. It's funny. <laughs> so now you hold the, but you hold the baton, which gives you the, the power position. So is, is the top leader, you, you mentioned a little bit about concentric, but is the top leader the only person with influence in any organization? Everybody has influence and we influence everybody around us. So Benjamin Sander um, wrote the book with his wife, The Art of Possibility. He's a conductor, he teaches in Boston, and um, he's conducting this Mahler symphony. And he notices this violinist who's just kind of lackadaisical and just halfway playing. So at the break, he said, well, what's going on? And she said, well, the conductors mark the bowings because they want a certain sound and, and the way the bows go and they go together influences the final sound. So she said, the bowings can't work at the tempo that you're taking this. And he said, well, what do you suggest? Which is unheard of. You know, this is the leader. He said, what do you suggest? She said, well, you're the conductor, but if it were me, I would take it slower. Well, we call that getting data. And it wasn't a mandate. And he didn't lessen his position at all. He got data. So he goes up and he takes a slower tempo and he looks and she's just really getting into it. So after the concert, it went really well. After the, and he took that tempo in the concert. After the concert, he calls up that violinist which is also unheard of, and said, what was going on with you? She said, this was my favorite piece of music. I was going to call and get a sub because I couldn't play it the way you wanted it at that tempo, and I was not willing to perform it poorly. Now, we don't really understand what people are thinking when they're not functioning. It might be something like that. It might be worse. we're setting them up for something they don't believe in or they can't do but they would like to be able to do it, but we don't give them the benefit of the doubt by understanding what their perspective is. So, so the next rehearsal, he had pieces of music and markers on every music stand, which is really dangerous <laughs> when you got a whole bunch of people that can criticize. He said, sign it, give me a, 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 an idea that, that I can implement. And, um, you know, that's a really bold step, but it's also understanding the people. And I had... Um, in my church in Atlanta, three services, and I had to have at least 65 singers in this big place to have, have a critical mass to be heard. And so it was very much on relationship when I asked people to sing more than one service, because mm -hmm. that's sitting through two sermons. That's doing a lot of extra work. So the, because I had a relationship with everybody there, you know, we, the Pareto rule works here. You work with the 20% individually that are high performers that are really doing things. You work with the other 80% in groups. So in groups or individually, I had, I had lunch with people. I had coffee with them. I had meetings. I knew everybody there. So when I would say, here's what I would like, who can do this? People responded favorably because I invested in, in relationship. So we do, because we have a relationship with people and we respect their abilities and we treat them as individuals, they're persons. They're not just violinists or oboists or HR professionals or finance professionals, it's a person there who has feelings and value and they want to be have value. So let's not assume they come to work and don't want to provide value. Let's assume they do and let's provide the pathway and the nurture to do that. And it's through relationship that we understand 
that everybody has a different opinion, a different perspective. And we can pull those together because every instrument in the orchestra not only sounds different, it has different protocol for performing, but there's also different personalities that go with those instruments. So does their personality come out in the way that they play? Oh, yeah. <laughs> brass, brass instruments are very bold. Wow. In uh, woodwinds, lots of intricate colors. You know, if, if you see sound, it's different colors and very finely different instruments. And the, the players have to make their own reeds if it's a reed instrument. And that's part of the craft of performing. You have the reed that you need for the right kind of sound you want. And even the percussionists, you know, we, we see them banging on stuff. Well, they're not pushing. They're extracting sound. You watch a timpanist and it, the, the mallet hits the drum just for a little bit. And then it, the sound comes out of it. So they pull the sound out of the instrument. And when you're not playing all the time, it's important that you play at the right time. And you know, violinists play a lot, but the triangle player might have to count 137 bars of rest and then play at the exact time. Now, you're going to know they're playing. And if it's the wrong time, that's bad. So there's people on your team that think and they don't respond all the time. It's our job to make sure they know when they can participate because not everybody wants to talk all the time, which is a good thing. But the people that are holding back and listening provide really valuable resources for you and insights to your planning. So it, it sounds as if the instrument and the personality, let's say in a corporate situation, are almost on the same level in terms of looking at what people are playing and determining how you might need to address them. That's a perfect analogy. That, that, that's, that's right. And, you know, there are transposing instruments like the trumpet. They see a, a C on the score. It's a C. They play a C. But when it sounds, it's a B flat. I don't know who made this stuff up, but it's a transposing instrument, like a B-flat clarinet or a French horn, it's an F, that's a fourth. So what comes out is different from what it appears. So we need to learn to transpose the people that come from another perspective than we expect to understand how that fits in the whole. And so there's not everybody thinks the same, which is an asset. You know, I've, I've built uh, diverse teams before it was fashionable to be diverse, and it, and it means a lot of things. And for instance, planning music program in the church, well, some of the people need to be musicians, but some of the people don't need to be musicians. And some of them need to have gray hair. Some of them need to you know, be texting and be a younger generation. So it's important that we, we look at what we're doing from the perspective of all of God's people. It's, it's a unique world. And so we're better off if we can get lots of different ideas and how to make this relevant to everyone. Amazing, amazing. Our guest, Hugh Blue, shared some great tips with us today, and the conversation continues. So join us next week for part two of Leading by Personal Influence Instead of Power of Position. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast. You will find us on Audible, C-Suite Radio, Spotify, and many other podcast platforms. We'll see you next time. And remember, the gracious leader is a powerful leader. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.